Good evening, and uh, this evening we are starting this book of Nahum, and I've entitled our series of studies as the peril of negligence. The peril of negligence. We looked at the book of Jonah and how the people of Nineveh, the same people who are addressed here in this book of uh, Nahum, 100 years had passed by from Jonah to Nahum. In this 100 years, things have become from bad to worse. 100 years ago, they were on fire, if you were to say. They were humbling themselves before God with sackcloth and ashes and saying, Lord, we are sorry for all the atrocities that we have committed. We don't want to come into your judgment. Jonah had said 40 days, you know, but even before the 40 days, they all said, we are sorry to God from the top to the bottom. Now, over a period of time, they thought, you know, it is okay, you know, God has not sent judgment, so judgment is not going to come upon us. And within you know, a hundred year period, slow, 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 slow erosion took place. You know. In a hundred years, a lot can happen. You look at any history for that matter, you know, of any nation, hundred years, a lot can happen. And such was the case for the Assyrian city of Nineveh. They had depended on the preaching of Jonah, but now Nahum spells out her doom because she has regressed back into life. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with this uh, illustration of if you put a frog in hot water, boiling water, it'll immediately jump out. But if you put a frog in cold water, put it on the glass, you know, start the flame, and slowly, slowly get it into boiling, you know, the frog will still be there, you know, and then die in that boiling water. Why? Because it was a, a slow process. When something happens slow enough and it is tolerated long enough, you know, what will happen is we don't know what's happening, you know, but you know, we have gone away from God. This is where the peril of negligence, you know, the simple things that are required to keep our faith alive. If we are not careful, there could have been a time as soon as we came to know the Lord, there was excitement in our walk with God, there was a desire to yield our all to Him, and we are following in His footsteps. But over a period of time, slow erosion can definitely take place. Now, you don't have to wait for 100 years because you may not live for 100 years. But look back into your life even this evening, from the time you have come to know Him and right now. Has there been any erosion in your walk with God, in your attitude to sin, or has there been you know, a constant victorious living? Now, this book is often neglected you know, because it's just a short book, three chapters, and you know, we wonder what is there in this book. It is only about history. It is only about how God brought about judgment, you know, and we don't really want to listen to a judgment message. We don't really want to listen to a message about the wrath of God. If somebody has entitled a message and saying, today I'm going to speak on the anger of God, we don't want to listen to that. But if somebody says, I'm going to speak on the love of God and his plan for your life and how he's going to bless you, hey, that sounds very interesting. But this book speaks about God's judgment because it is actually out of love for the people. 
Vinodas, the book of Jonah ended by saying, you know, am I not concerned about these people, the people of Nineveh? Now he's concerned for them. So, 100 years have gone by, he's waited, he's given them a long rope, you know, and then now that they have gone from bad to worse, he says, enough is enough. So, this is where both sides, you know, of God needs to be understood. Yes, a God is a God of love, but a God is holiness as well, anger as well. It's a holy anger, if we were to say, or if we were to say also, it's a loving anger. The reason for his judgment and anger is so that a person would respond. That is what the first message was. Jonah's message was, you know, 40 days, you know, and judgment. They responded. God's love came into operation and God withheld the judgment. Here, same message. This is what is going to happen. But there's no mention. There's no response of these individuals turning around in obedience to the Lord, okay? So this is something we must you know, check in our lives. Even though our God is a God of love, our God is also a holy God. And where there is sin, whether it's in the life of the believer, whether it's there in the life of the unbeliever, sin will not go unpunished. So as much as this chapter is speaking about the judgment on Nineveh, you know, we must also look into our lives and find out, you know, is that judgment going to come upon sin on our own lives? Or when you're thinking about, you know, what's happening in the world around and you're wondering, where is God? What is he doing? Hey, God is still on the throne. He is going to definitely bring about judgment, just as he brought judgment on Nineveh 100 years later. Now, if God did not love Nineveh, first of all, he would not have sent a prophet to them, Jonah, to say, hey, I'm giving you an opportunity. Okay? If God did not you know, love uh, the people of Nineveh, he would not have sent Nahum to warn them also of their coming destruction. The fact is that God sent these prophets, showed that he loved and cared for them. When he sent Jonah, <laughs> they responded. When he sent Nahum, they do not respond. So let's look at a little background setting of these people, the historical background of the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was founded by Nimrod, and it had a long history. It was located on the east bank of the Tigris River, and the river acted as the western and southern boundaries of the city. Now, this is important for us to understand then, uh, the city and what happened to it. Now, this city was destroyed by the Babylonians, Medes, and Scythians in 612 BC. And according to the ancient historian Diodorus Siculus, the armies laid siege, siege to the city for over two years. And in the third year, the Corsair River, which ran through the city, flooded, broke down the floodgates, and part of the wall which allowed the enemy to come in. And this fulfilled what Nahum prophesied in chapter 1, chapter 2, as well as chapter 3. Before it happened, you know, Nahum, God sent Nahum to say, hey, this is what is, will happen. And for two years, these enemies are there waiting. But even though Nahum has prophesied, even though these enemies are around, these guys still went about doing their own thing. 
Now, this is something we must treat seriously because God treats sin very seriously. He doesn't condone it. Just because we are his children, it doesn't mean he will condone or overlook sin. He gives us opportunity. He gives us opportunity. His loving kindness motivates us, grants us uh, grace so that we would repent. But if, you know, after all the warnings, a person does not respond, the only thing that is left for God is for God to send judgment. The city was destroyed so completely <coughs> by the flood and the enemies that when Alexander the Great fought the battle of Arbella nearby in 331 BC, he did not know there had been a city there. That is how complete the destruction was <coughs> as it was prophesied by prophet Nahum. Nineveh was never rebuilt. And this also confirms Nahum's prediction in chapter 1 and verse 9, which says that distress will not rise up twice. The destruction will be so complete, you know, that there would not be any opportunity for it to come back again. No more rebuilding, no more destruction again. Yes, you know, the first time chance was given, they responded, but now there is no response. And that is how complete the destruction was. And it wasn't under, until 1850 that Nineveh was discovered by the archaeologists. Think how complete the destruction was. As much as we speak about the love of God being complete, the anger of God, the judgment of God is also complete. When he destroys, when he passes judgment, it is a total complete judgment. Now, now, the prophet Nahum was sent to minister to the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of the invasion of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. King Sennacherib, who came from the capital city of Syria, Nineveh, invaded Assyria at the time of the prophet Isaiah. And it was from this great city in the north that the armies of the Syrians frequently came against the land of Judah and Israel. Remember, the scripture always speaks about the enemy coming from the north, okay? What happened was, you know, finally, they came in, captured the northern kingdom, took them captive, the southern kingdom was left. So here are the people of Judah sitting and wondering, hey, what's going to happen? Where is God? We are trusting in him, but these enemies who are so strong have now come and taken over the northern kingdom. We are only left. Would we also be taken over? Lord, what are you up to? And God sends uh, Nahum as a messenger of comfort, as a messenger of comfort. Now, that's what Nahum means, by the way, okay? The uh, book bears the name of this prophet Nahum, that is the author. His name means comfort or consolation. And it is the shortened form of the na name Nehemiah. Okay. And the city of Capernaum is named after Nahum. The Jews call that city as Kefer Nahum or the city of Nahum. So look at the people of Judah here. You know. Here is a message of consolation. Here is a person whose name is consolation, okay, who comes along and gives them this message of judgment for the enemies. Now, think for a moment, you know, 
Would that bring about consolation to you? If the message comes and says, hey, you're worried about these enemies, you know, we're wondering how God, how, how long God is going to keep quiet and, you know, you're going through the oppression, you're going through the troubles, you're going through all the persecutions, you know, God is not doing anything about it. But the message comes and says, this is what I'm going to do for them, you know, and uh, will that be a consolation for you? If you remember, these are questions that the prophet Habakkuk also had, isn't it? When he had those questions, Lord, what are you up to? And the Lord says, I'm going to bring judgment. How? And I'm going to bring the Babylonians to punish you guys. And then, he, and then Habakkuk is upset. He says, Lord, I'm talking to you about you're doing nothing about sin and judgment on these people. You're saying sin and judgment is going to come on us. And then the Lord also says, don't worry. This is also going to happen to them as well. So the message of judgment primarily comes because our God is a holy God. So if we are living in the right relationship with him, then this message of comfort can be a very, very, in a real comfort to know that God is the one who is in control. The Lord is the one who will finally bring about judgment. So there is comfort for the godly in the very anger of God, in the very anger of God. If you notice in the book of Revelation, it speaks about those you know, saints who are crying night and day, how long, how long, how long, you know. The Lord says, yes, judgment is going to come. Yes, finally, there will be a time of judgment. And when God does the job, you know, as the scripture very clearly shows us in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he is going to do a thorough, complete job. Let's look at seven reasons why we should study this book. Number one, Nahum is the sequel to Jonah. That's why we are doing Jonah and Nahum together, because both of them are dealing with the people of Nineveh. They are dealing with one time, 100 years ago, they responded. Now, 100 years later, they have turned away from God. So, Nahum is the Bible's sequel, if you were to say. Now, sequel. Now, if you notice, a lot of people do sequels, isn't it? Part one, part two, okay? This is like that, you know, continuation of what happened to the city, the people of Nineveh. Now, remember, the Ninevites had a reputation for cruelty that is hard to understand in our day. Their speciality was brutality of a gross and a disgusting kind. I'm reading this, sharing this with you to help you to understand, you know, even when we read and hear about this, you know, how we would feel and think of, about how much more God would feel. This is what it says, you know, their speciality was brutality of a gross and disgusting kind. When their army, armies captured a city or a country, the soldiers <coughs> would perform unspeakable atrocities. What are these atrocities? They were skinning people alive, decapitation, mutilation, ripping out tongues, making a pyramid of human heads, piercing the chin with a rope, and forcing prisoners to live in kennels like dogs. No wonder <coughs> people were afraid. They hated the Assyrians. Line picture Jonah over here. You know, this is how they were. And God is telling them, God is telling Jonah, go and preach a message of you know, judgment. He's happy to say, okay, God is going to punish these guys. 
But when they res respond, he is very upset. No, I'm sure Jonah would have been happy to preach this message of the book of uh, Prophet Nahum, isn't it? He would have been happy to go and preach this judgment against the people of Nineveh. They say, this is what's going to happen to you. His heart would have been thrilled to preach this message. But that's another message that God gave you know, to Jonah. God gives this message to Nahum. <clears throat> so if Jonah reminds us that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy, Nehemiah reminds us that you know, God will by no means acquit the guilty. <coughs> so we need to study this book because it's a sequel. Number two, it also sharpens our understanding of God. It also sharpens our understanding of God. Nehem wants to correct our understanding about God in ways that challenge our cultures and our Christian subcultures' assumptions about God. Two aspects. <laughs> the, our uh, Christian subculture and <coughs> what is the culture all around us? The culture all around us says, where is God? I'm holding up my fist against God. God is not doing anything about it. I'm continuing in sin. God is not doing anything about it. And sometimes as Christians, a person can say, after all, God is a God of love. You know, he will overlook sin. So as we study this book, it will help us to understand you know, God better, sharpen our understanding. Thirdly, it also would help us to appreciate God's jealous anger, God's jealous anger, appreciating his jealousy. God's jealousy compels him always to act to protect his name and his people, even if it meant taking on the world's most powerful empire. The world's most powerful empire thought they were the boss, so they could do anything. But God says, no, these are my people. I'm jealous for them. So it gives us an understanding of how much God loves us. That when our enemies attack us, this is the jealousy of God. You know, his zeal for his people makes sure that he will fight for us. You know. We'll also look at it in a, in a little depth in a, later on when we understand this word meaning of you know, jealous. Sometimes we think about jealous as a negative thing, isn't it? No, no, it's a very positive thing. It's a very positive thing. Fourthly, to persuade us that God cares powerfully about justice. God cares powerfully about justice. <clears throat> when injustice is on the increase and when you wonder... God, what are you doing? Hundred years have gone by, you have done nothing. God says, don't worry. Nah, I'm still in charge. Judgment will finally come. And when you're looking at the world today, with its increase of injustice, increase of atrocities all across the globe, and you may wonder, what's happening? The Lord says, no, I'm in charge. Everything is proceeding to its final end of the soon coming judgment of God. No matter whichever nation thinks, you know, that they are the superpowers, like Assyria thought at that time. You know, God says, no, there's no superpowers. I am the one who is the all-powerful one. Fifthly, it helps us to understand the comfort that we get from an uncomfortable God. The comfort that we get from an uncomfortable God. 
in the midst of all the uncomfortable situations that are happening, we notice even in this chapter, you have these uh, uh, intermissions of you know, the Lord's love. The Lord is slow to anger. You know. This is the comfort that he gives to us. In the midst of the uncomfortableness, we will find the Lord always issues that word of comfort to his people. Nahum reminds us that God cares about the suffering of his people. He's not surprised by the strength of the enemies and he does definitely not doubt the victory that he will have over them. Sixthly, it encourages us to be more grateful to Jesus, to be more grateful to Jesus. How Jesus paid the perfect sacrifice for our sin and fulfilled the justice of God that where there is sin, it has to be punished. That's where the holy God, holiness of God comes in, isn't it? Now, so when the holiness of God says sin has to be punished, and here when the people of Nineveh were continuing in sin, God says, I'm going to punish you. Jesus, down through the history later on now, pays the price for our sins so that we don't have to face the wrath of God, the judgment of God. So it helps us to be grateful to what Jesus has done for us. And number seven, it helps us to press on to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It helps us to press on towards the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 612 BC, within 20 years of Nahum's writing this book, the Babylon Empire came and wiped his Assyria off the face of the earth. And Nineveh, which was considered very strong, passed into obscurity until 1842, when the archaeologists discovered the remains north of Mosul in Iraq. Now, all this is happening. Judgment is going to take place. And it is all moving towards what? Christ coming back again. Because that's when the judgment is going to take place. So if you are living worried lives, what's going to happen to the world? Yes, judgment is going to come. Yes, but Christ is going to come back again. So both these sides, judgment for the unbeliever, judgment for sin, and Christ coming for his church is also being represented in this book. So having said that as in a little introduction, let's uh, now get into this passage this uh, evening. It's you know, the oracle of Nineveh, the oracle of Nineveh. The King James uses you know, the burden of Nineveh, the burden of Nineveh. The Hebrew word that is used here means a burden or an utterance specifically of doom, specifically of doom. Now, if you notice in, our, in this chapter, you know, there's no mention whatsoever of you know, Nahum going to Nineveh and speaking to the people of Nineveh. It's just a message to say of judgment that is going to come. The word Nineveh appears only in this first verse, which says the burden of Nineveh, that God placed upon the heart of Nahum to go and preach this message of judgment. So Nahum's message, this burden actually, is in a one of judgment. Now, the word that is used there, you know, burden, means it's a heavy thing upon him. It's a heavy message because it's a message of doom and judgment. Now, now I wonder if you were Nahum, would you have been willing to carry that burden of judgment 
to speak to the people. When God has placed us in this world to be preachers of love, yes, but to be also preachers of judgment. How easy is it to preach a message of judgment? The prophet Nahum did that. Even though we don't know much about this prophet at all, he's called, you know, as the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, okay? We don't know much about the place Elkoshite either, okay? So people will think or say that, you know, and it was apparently a native city named Elkosh, the location also of which is uncertain. But also you have in a Capernaum, some individuals will say, you know, that Capernaum means the village of Nehum. So maybe he was the founder of this place. In other words, it's an unknown prophet, unknown you know, details about the person, but the message becomes the consolation. So Nahum, consolation, that's the meaning. So the emphasis is not on the person, the emphasis on the comfort this passage will give to us. So in verses 2 to 6, we have a description of the intensity of God's awesome wrath. The intensity of God's awesome wrath. If you notice, it says, a jealous and an avenging God is the Lord. A jealous and an avenging God is the Lord. So this intensity of God's in our wrath is consistent with his character. He's avenging God, he's a wrathful God, and that is his character. Now, very few times you will think about God's character this way, isn't it? Okay. When Nahum describes God as jealous and avenging, these are God's attributes. And the Hebrew uses the word keno and kena, you know, for jealousy. And the meaning of both these words are somewhat practically identical, okay? And they refer directly to the attributes of God's justice and holiness. And that he is the sole object of human worship and does not tolerate man's sin. When the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Also, Joshua uses the same word, Kano, in his in a, uh, farewell speech to the people of Israel, where he says, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. So what do you mean by this jealous? He's ready to defend his honor against all who oppose him. He's ready to defend his honor against all who oppose him. And as one who loves his people so much that he's willing <coughs> to uh, you know, punish the oppression. So both these aspects are there. On one side, ready to defend his honor. On the other side, willing to show his love for his people. Now, these are words that are used also in terms of a marriage relationship, isn't it? The book of Proverbs mentions jealousy and revenge in the same breath, where it says, Jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. Okay? The husband's love for his wife, you know, motivates him to be jealous when someone says or does something to her. Now that's the imagery when the Bible speaks about our God is a jealous God. 
So the intention of God's jealousy in relation to other nations you know, other than Israel leads us also on one side to consider this option that God has created those individuals. He is jealous for them. He loves them. He does not want them to suffer. He does not want them to go the way they are going because of the other people. So his jealousy is motivating him to show this judgment so that they will turn to him. That's what happened in the book of Jonah. But here, if you notice, in spite of when God says, I'm jealous, he, the people of Nineveh do not respond because they do not consider themselves as his people. But you and I who are his people from this understanding of our God is a jealous God. That is a message of comfort. That is a message of comfort. If you notice, jealousy is also found in connection with idolatry. You know? In the book of Exodus, we read, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. So if a person is not worshipping God, for who he is, because he is his creator, the scripture says, I am a jealous God. I won't like it. I won't like it. If you are worshipping some other gods instead of me as the genuine creator, hey, I won't like it. That is the anger of God. That's the anger of God, the jealousy of God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Then in verse 3, he says, but the Lord is slow to anger. He's great in part, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Three things he mentions over there. The Lord is slow to anger. Here is a message of grace. Here's a message of hope. A message that the people of Nineveh picked up and responded 100 years ago. But there's also a message of warning. Because when it says slow to anger, that means you know, finally there's going to be an anger. You know, yes, he's slow, but finally, if you don't respond, then there will definitely be anger. Peter, if you notice, says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So why is he slow to anger? Because he's a loving God, he is a patient God, he wants you and me to respond to him. He wants you and me to turn from sin, from sin and follow after God. That is why he is slow to anger. That is why he is loving and, and a patient. So his long-suffering, his patience and a, should not be taken as a sign of weakness, but a sign of power. That's why the third aspect he says over there, slow to anger, you know, and great in power, great in power. Then in verses you know, 3 to 5, you know, Nahum gives us an intensity of the anger of God, how it is going to be revealed in nature. Now, when you think about you know, all creation groaning, waiting for you know, his coming, if you notice the creation is also being subjected. Why? When sin entered into this world. Nature was also affected. And when the judgment comes in, nature is also going to be used by God, a sign of his anger. 
So I have a couple of images over here. First of all, the image of a storm. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. This is like, you know, chariots of horses, you know, coming with extreme rapidity, high speed, and they're all enveloped in a cloud of dust, you know. This is the word picture, okay. Images of a storm, you know, judgment coming so fast and quick, you know, that everything that you see around is nothing, you know, it's just dust all around. And that's what happened to the people of Nineveh, totally destroyed. Then you also have the images of the oceans and the rivers. He rebukes the sea and makes them dry. This would also be a sign of God's miraculous intervention in nature during the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Now, whether the Assyrians were familiar with this historical record or not, we do not know. But for the children of Israel, that would have been a, a comfort. When judgment comes, you know, they may have looked back. Of course, there were many, many years ago, but they would have remembered that. When the Egyptians tried to come in the same route, you know, the Lord's judgment came and closed up the waters and they perished. So God is in charge. God is in charge of nature. Thirdly, you find images of forests and fields, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither. Bashan and Carmel were considered the essence of natural beauty and fertility. In the Song of Solomon, Anna, the lover says to his bride, the fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. So, the mention of the drying up of the sea and the rivers were referenced to God's intervention for the salvation of his children. And the withering of the world's flower garden is an allusion to God's judgment. Now, we don't know how green the city was, how many flowers it had, but the scripture says here, <laughs> the flowers and the blossoms will <coughs> wither. So, <coughs> storms are there, you know, you have you know, the plant life that is affected, beauty is you know, you know, affected, withered. Then you have images of mountains and hills, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Mountains, sea, nature, beauty. Everything is coming under the intensive you know, destruction, judgment of God. Verse 5 and 6 are painting pictures of earthquake and volcanic eruptions. And if you notice, these were the warning signs that Jesus gave, isn't it, about his coming. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise again, nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pants. All these are the beginning of birth pants. Now, you can check it up in history. You know, this generation has had more earthquakes you know, than any generation beforehand. Now, we got so used to the earthquakes, you know, and we measure the Richter scale, and so it's not a very big one. You know, but there are also big ones that are taking place. And indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. Uh, the world and all the inhabitants in it. This is a summary of what the judgment of God is going to be so complete. Okay. Then in verse 6, he speaks about the intensity of God's wrath, you know, overwhelming in its devastation. Two rhetorical questions he asks in verse 6. He says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? 
It's a rhetorical question. What do you mean by a rhetorical question? The answers are given in that question itself. No one. No one can stand before his anger. No one can stand you know, before his indignation. And then there are two images that are given of his destructive power. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. Total fire which has engulfed the city, brought it down to ashes, you know, and maybe even the rocks that are there are blasted, you know, and they are broken into tiny pieces. And that's what happened to the city of Nineveh because it was totally destroyed and nobody even knew that the city was there, as I mentioned to you earlier. But verse 7 gives us the security. Security for God's people, you know. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. So, this is the consolation. This is the comfort that God gives to his people. If we are taking our refuge in him, then he is going to be our stronghold because he's a good God. The security is based on the Lord's paternal goodness. The security is based on his powerful protection. And the security is based on his personal shepherding, personal shepherding. Okay. So, a contrast is given. For the people of Assyria, it's going to be judgment. But for the people who belong to him, our God is a jealous God. He's a good God. If we are taking our refuge in him, if we are trusting in him, then God's judgment does not fall upon us in, a, in the day of trouble. But he's a refuge. We can go to him and we can find safety in him. <laughs> then in verse 8 to 14, it speaks about the finality of God's awesome wrath, a description that is given. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its place. Now remember, as I mentioned to you initially in that introduction, there was a flooding that took place and there was a total, complete end of that place. This is what was prophesied by Nahum, chapter 1, verse 8, 20 years before it actually happened. Now, the Hebrew text only speaks about the place or the site, you know. So far, Nineveh has not been mentioned in this prophecy except in the heading, okay. But this passage, this verse especially, will give us the understanding that this is speaking actually about Nineveh. That is why you know, the NIV translation inserts Nineveh into it. Even though the Hebrew does not mention Nineveh, it mentions only the place and a place or the place. Now Nineveh is added on because this is verses specifically speaking about Nineveh. You know? <clears throat> so in the case of uh, Nineveh, the river of God's wrath you know, over the city was not just a figure of speech, but it actually happened. The Wycliffe Bible commentary says, that Cletesias, which was a Greek historian of the 5th century BC, recounts that while a drunken feast was going on in, the, in Nineveh, a sudden inundation of the Tigris River swept away the city gates and washed away the foundations of the palace, thus permitting the Babylonians' army to enter and burn the city. So this verse 8, is not just a figurative language of you know, the river of God's wrath, but it is also literal. 
that this actually happened. Okay. And then it says, I will pursue his enemies into darkness. So that total destruction, no light, utter darkness. Then in verses 9 to 13, you know, more description is given, a detailed description of what will happen. Verse 9 says, no second chance, because whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. So verse 8 was the specific prophecy being fulfilled about you know, this river coming in and the flood coming in and destroying the city. Verse 9, which is a prophecy concerning that no destruction will happen the second time. In other words, this city is going to be so thoroughly destroyed, it's not going to be rebuilt again. That also happened because this city was so lost you know, that it was discovered by the archaeologists only in the 1840s. Remember, biblical prophecies, you know, fulfillment to the dot. And when Jesus says he's going to come back again, if these prophecies have been fulfilled so literally, it's a consolation, it's a comfort to know that if he's prophesied, I'm coming back soon, it is also going to happen. Verse 10 gives us you know, some more images of destruction like tangled thorns, you know, like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. Worthless thorns, worthless drunks, drunks, worthless stubble. You know. If you notice in a prophecy against Assyria, Isaiah says, the light of Israel will become a fire. They are holy ones of flame. In a single day it will burn, and consume his thorns and his briars. This is what Isaiah prophesied, you know, and this is what Nahum is prophesying over here. Now, tangled thorns are tough to penetrate, but they are no match for fire. You may think, you know, I'm well protected, you know, but, you know, fire comes in, knocks out everything. So likewise, the Ninevites, as confused as they would be when their city was under attack, there would be no match for the consuming fire of God's wrath. Also, they were confused because when it says over there, like those who are drunken with their drunks, you know, remember they were having a drunken feast when all this happened, you know, prophesied many years ago, but fulfilled to the dot. Then you also find in verses 11 to 13, you know, how God is going to still deliver his people by destroying their enemies. For you have gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. He describes the adversary. You are perverse people. Because remember uh, the atrocities that the people of Nineveh were doing. You are perverse people. You, know? you are wicked people. Even though, even though, you know, they think they are strong, they are important, you know, of their strength and numbers. Unfortunately, NIV is the only version that renders verse 12 as although they have allies. Okay. KJV translates this as though they be quiet. You know, the RSV says though they be strong. Okay. But the Hebrew word that is used there, shalem, which basically means complete, complete. Okay. So what the scripture is saying, yeah, even though they think they are complete, 
even though they think they are strong, you know, they shall be mown down. They shall pass away. They shall pass away. God is going to destroy them. Even though they thought they were the most powerful nation. Now, there are a lot of nations who are so much of anti-God, who think they are much more powerful than God. <laughs> What's going to happen to them? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Lord. So in verse 12, the word that is translated in the NRSV is full strength, full strength, okay? So this is the idea that even though the Assyrians thought they had full strength, they were not going to be any match for God. They were going to be cut off and they were going to be taken away. Now, if you notice in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, you have the description of how the Assyrian armies came down and spread out before the city of Jerusalem. Then with taunting challenges to King Hezekiah, they told him they were going to take the city and that there was no strength that could stand against them. Remember the taunt and Hezekiah comes into the presence of God and places it before the Lord. Isaiah tells us how Hezekiah took these messages and spread them before the Lord and asked God to save the city even with the armies of Assyria surrounding it. They said they were strong. That's what Sennacherib told the people, isn't it? You know, you think your God is going to deliver them? This is the context. And that night, we are told, the angel of death went through the Assyrian host and slew 185,000 soldiers. This is what is referred to in these verses. <laughs> okay. In verse 12, it says, Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will bring his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. Okay. This is what God is going to do. You know, a complete end in verse 14. You know, the Lord has assured a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are contemptible. Okay. This is how God gives this divine decree to say that everything is going to be stripped off. You'll have nothing left. You won't have a legacy at all. That's what happened, isn't it? And any idols that you have, all these things will be totally smashed. Okay. And he says, this is going to be your destiny, your final destiny in the grave. Now, because you have been a depraved people. So the Lord promised to destroy Nineveh's idols and remove them from their temples. Now remember in those days when an, uh, an army came and uh, overthrew a nation, they took those nations' gods and put them in, a, in their showcase to say, hey, this is the god that we defeated. But the Assyrians often carried the idols of the nations they conquered to demonstrate the superiority of their gods over those of the conquered, you know. But the conquering Medes, the Persians, despised idolatry and did away with multitudes of images that existed in Nineveh. Again, what is prophesied came to be fulfilled to the dot, okay. Now, it was also a great curse in the ancient Near East to have no descendants. And it was a great humiliation to have no gods. But both these fates were prophesied for Nineveh, and it happened. God also said that Nineveh will be 
buried. This will be buried, you know, buried in the grave, no legacy. Remember, that's also what happened. That's also what happened. They fell quickly into ruin. This is what, you know, the Nelson Study Bible note says, for all its might, Nineveh fell quickly into ruin, leaving no trace but a mound which is today known as Tel Kuyunjik, the mound of many sheep. The mound of many sheep. That's all that is left of this particular place. Okay, <laughs> now verse 15. <clears throat> verse 15. Again, a security. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. <coughs> It is like as soon as the message comes, hey, Nineveh has fallen, Nineveh has been destroyed, you know, the people come and you know, with that message, the shout of praise to say, Nineveh has been destroyed, you know. So it says, behold on the mountain, the feet of those who bring these good news. Now in Hebrew Bibles, verse 15 appears in the first verse of the next chapter. But if you notice, this verse, you know, is a verse which we are familiar with in a way, in the New Testament, because this verse is the verse that is used, you know, primarily for speaking about evangelism, isn't it? Where Paul writing, you know, to the uh, Romans says, how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Also in Isaiah 52 and verse 7 says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, your God reigns. And if you notice, Isaiah speaking about this also leads it further, you know, into what Jesus was going to do. Child will be born, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. So this is the message that Isaiah picks up from here, from judgment that was going to come, and the message of the Savior who was going to come, and the message that has been entrusted to us today as a consolation, as a comfort for us, but also as a message to share how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the message of comfort. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We notice the scripture says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned, a light has dawned. And then moving further, he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And this security that we have has to be trumpeted throughout the world, shown, shouted, you know, behold the mountains, you know, behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. God has given us this message. And when we go and share that message, people who are living in darkness, people who are living under the threat of judgment, you know, when God releases them, just as much as there would have been great rejoicing when the city of Nineveh fell, for the people of Judah, even today, when you're thinking about the future of what God is going to do, you know, for us, 
There's that comfort and the strength. And if we have done that footing, if they have taken that steps to go and share with those individuals, hey, look here, you can be saved from that judgment, and they turn around and follow after the Lord, and they don't face that judgment, that will also be a time of rejoicing. So that's why he says, celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows. You know. It's going to be a heart of thanksgiving and obedience. Now there's going to be no more restrictions, you know, no more persecutions, no more troubles. There's going to be eternity to be spent worshipping the Lord. Okay? And then he says, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. The assurance of total, complete, eternal security that God gives to us. So let me close with some eight characteristics of a comforting God. What comfort can we get about God from these verses? Number one, our God is a zealous God. Our God is a zealous God. Unlike jealousy on the human plane, you know, which can have a wrong connotation, God's jealousy is primarily out of his love for us, his bride. And that's an encouragement to each one of our hearts this evening. Whatever you may be going through, our God is a zealous God. He will fight for his people. He has fought, paid the price, you know, by his own precious blood. Even, even today, his love motivates you know, him to be zealous, to stand on behalf of his people, the church. Secondly, you know, God is an avenging God. God is an avenging God. He is the one who will be, you know, uh, fighting on our behalf against our adversaries. He champions our cause against you know, the adversaries. To avenge means to inflict harm in return. Okay. It is usually associated with the other person who has done harm on those who are weak. You know. But God is the one who works for the weak. Avenging means he is the one who is working for our behalf. When I am weak, then I can say I am strong. Thirdly, God is a wrathful God. God is a wrathful God. He has the power to avenge. He is God because he is, you know, his anger is against sin. So if there is sin in our lives, just as much as the people of Nineveh were so you know, filled with perverseness and atrocities, and God says, hey, I cannot look upon that you know, and condone it. God brought about judgment. His anger. When Jesus was here on earth, you know, he took out the whip, you know, why, you know, because they had made a house of prayer into a den of thieves, you know. That's the anger of God. It's not God losing his temper, but the righteous anger of God against sin. But the fourth understanding is he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Over and over again, second chance, second chance, second chance. He gave to Jonah, you know, and he gives to each one of us. But we cannot presume on those second chances. We cannot presume on the grace of God. We cannot presume that he's slow to anger, so it's okay. No, no. The anger has a limit. My spirit shall not always try with man. That's what the Lord says. Fifthly, God is very powerful. God is very powerful. Yes, he's slow to anger, but he's also powerful. He is a powerful God. You know, he uh, exhibits his power in us and through us. That's a great consolation. And sixthly, God is a quick God. Quick God means in a, in a quickness in coming to our response. In a, in a, if an unjust judge will respond, how much more in a God 
will respond quick you know but sometimes you may think hey how long how long no no don't don't think about it that way that the lord says how much more how much more quickly you know how much more quickly the lord will respond <coughs> and uh, number 7 god is a good god god is a good god okay when we encounter trouble he becomes the stronghold on which we can anchor our soul he cares for those who take refuge in him he is a stronghold in our day of distress as was 7 tells us and number 8 he is a caring god he cares for those who take refuge in him the word for cares means that he knows us he knows us you know the point is because he knows us he is able to care for our deepest needs he can comfort us because he knows us often times when you are looking for comfort the other person doesn't know us so we they have no comfort to us like job you know people came to comfort him they opened their mouths they were they did not know what he was going through it was no comfort but god knows us and as a result it is a comfort that's why in 1 peter chapter 5 and verse 7 it says casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you so i hope this message has been a message of encouragement on one side but also on the other hand a warning on a warning the peril of negligence you know if we do not and a hearken to the voice of warning judgment is definitely certain couple of application questions before i close this evening number 1 what attributes does the lord possess and manifest like elish and avenging and wrathful that we as believers do not possess even though we are growing into christ likeness number 2 how am i doing at loving my enemies and praying for them number 3 in what ways do people tend to minimize or underestimate the wrath of god And number four, am I secure in taking refuge in the Lord as my stronghold? Am I eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord and the good news of His triumph over all enemies in the last day? Let's bow our heads and pray together.